Welcome to Pathways. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. And today we're talking with Dr. Evan Jollison. Dr. Jollison received his PhD degree in the Immunology and Virology program of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. His dissertation work in Ray Walsh's laboratory centered on virus-specific MHC class II restricted killing in vivo, as well as the dynamics and magnitude of virus-induced polyclonal B-cell activation that's mediated by B-cell receptor-independent presentation of viral antigens. After a three-year postdoc in the laboratory of the late Leo LeFrancois at the University of Connecticut Health Center, in 2011, he became an assistant professor and director of the flow cytometry facility at UConn Health. How did the opportunity to take over an important core laboratory come about? Well, we're about to find out. Evan, welcome to Pathways. Hi, Randy. Thanks for having me. Tell us, Evan, so you're a core, a really important core laboratory director. How did you get the job? So as a postdoctoral fellow, um, I took on a lot of responsibility helping out the, my fellow postdoctoral fellows and uh, graduate students with their experiments, um, specifically um, in flow cytometry. And um, my mentor, Leo LeFrancois, was wise enough to see that talent in me and uh, actually invited me to come on board as the director of the facility. It's, it's both what you know and who you know in, in, in that situation, certainly. So let's go way back to when you were first, um, say, growing up. So have you always been interested in science, or you know, when weren't you bitten by the the science bug? So I think I was always a kid who liked to take things apart. If a remote control car broke, I was always uh, pulling it apart and trying to see what made it go, what made it break, and if I could put it back together. Not always successful. Um, and then as an undergraduate, I think like most people who end up in in science, um, I wanted to be a physician. At least I thought I did. And then uh, at about my junior year, I decided that it wasn't for me. Uh, after doing some research on it, believe it or not, um, I realized that uh, it wasn't a lifestyle that I was going to be uh, uh, accustomed to, or it's not something I, would, I think I would like uh, to do on a daily basis. And so I said, dude, now what am I going to do? <laughs> so I'm in my junior year of college and uh, senior year is coming, and I, I, I should probably have a plan for when I graduate. Um, and so I was fortunate that my uh, undergraduate institution, Stonehill College, had an um, summer undergraduate research experience, uh, which I applied for. And um, actually, at the time, I did ecology research and marine biology, uh, looking at uh, polluted waters, actually in the place where I grew up in eastern Massachusetts, and um, looking for biomarkers of pollution and how the cleanup had been going. Um, and that's what, uh, that's basically when the research bug bit me um, and drove me down the path to getting my PhD, going to UMass, um, and then continuing on with a postdoctoral fellowship and then um, now running this facility. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think you're probably the, uh, the second guest I've had on Pathways who, for them, uh, experienced Woods Hole made a, a huge difference in the career path they took. Amazing. That place is amazing when, and certainly as graduate students, since you and I went to the same place, and it's, it's deeper than that if folks don't really realize that. But nonetheless, we used to have our, our, our immunology conferences there. That's true. Which is a great facility. It was a great opportunity to learn about what's going on in that part of Massachusetts, and it's, uh, it was a lot of, lot of fun. 
it's still happening. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's, to me, that's incredibly important. So for you, so you went directly from undergraduate to graduate school. So which, when you made that decision and you stepped through the door at UMass, your first day, what were your plans in terms of after you graduated, what was your ultimate career goal? Um, to be honest with you, I, I didn't necessarily have a specific plan in mind. Um, so I, I knew I was interested in science. Um, actually, at the time, I was really interested in viruses. Um, and I assumed I'd end up in a virology lab. And, um, you know, I ended up in a viral immunology lab, which is, which is right up there. Um, but, you know, I didn't know if I'd end up being uh, one of these people in a spacesuit roaming through the jungles of Africa looking for Ebola or if I, <laughs> or, uh, if I would end up working at a, uh, you know, a national laboratory like the National Institutes of Health or, or something like that. But I was never necessarily uh, focused on becoming a, a PI, uh, you know, a, a strict PI as it were. Um, but it was always on my list of potential opportunities that were, were there for me. Um, and so, yeah, I just, kept myself open to whatever opportunity presented itself. And um, I have to say, I, I, I really like this job. Uh, it uh, allows me to live vicariously through uh, all the people that come through here. We have, we're a smaller institution. We have, you know, 50 some odd investigators that come through um, and probably over a hundred users in general, if you count graduate students, postdocs, technicians, et cetera. Um, but I live vicariously through their research and um, every day I help with something different. Um, this really allowed me to broaden my horizons. So by no means am I an expert in neuroscience nor uh, stem cell biology or anything like that. But as I've gone along, I've picked up some of the different markers that are required for, for those uh, uh, fields. And I've been able to really help uh, a variegated amount of, of different researchers here, um, just picking something up from one researcher that, hey, have you looked at, say, for a mesenchymal stem cell, have you looked at CD105 expression or have you looked at CD90 expression? Um, are you sure you have the culture that you think you have growing? Um, and so those are the sorts of interactions that I try to help with on a daily basis. So, so for you, since you mentioned that in terms of, hey, you work with mesenchymal stem cells, have you thought about these markers, how much more reading do you have to do than you've done before. You talk about neuroscience, and I can certainly relate to that since my lab's starting to do more uh, interest in, in that, have more interest in that. But how much do you read now, and how diverse is the, the, the stack of papers <laughs> you have to read every day? So, uh, you know, I, the, the stack of papers is actually, uh, you know, you don't want to look at my desk right now, but uh, uh, generally I, I basically get it through email through uh, the eTalk that, that comes in your email every week. And, and, and honestly, there's a, there's a lot that comes off my radar at this point. Um, and I end up becoming more of a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, so you, you mentioned some of what my postdoctoral research was on and some of what my graduate school uh, research was on. And, and yeah, I, I could probably admit to being a somewhat of an expert in those fields, but um, I, you do pick up things here and there for sure. Um, the other thing that I do, since we're on a podcast, is I actually listen to podcasts on my way to and from work. Um, a lot of my colleagues think I'm crazy for doing that, but you know, if you have 45 minutes in a car, it's a great way to learn things outside of your field. So the Nature Magazine podcast, the Science Magazine podcast, uh, even Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos um, comes across my radar. So what, what does a typical day for you look like? You said you live vicariously, so tell us about a typical day. 
Um, I'm a little more hands-on than maybe some core directors are. So I get involved um, in every aspect of people's uh, experimentation from consulting in the beginning to, um, you know, basically making figures for papers for people um, using the various software that's required. Um, but my typical day, I, I, you know, come in, settle in a little bit, start up the computers um, and set up the instrumentation. Um, and then I'll come back and look at the schedule see who's using what instrumentation. Of course, some things are booked, in ahead, booked ahead of time for me to specifically assist people one-on-one, -on -one. but um, I'll go from instrument to instrument and do quality control and make sure that the instrument is functioning as it's supposed to. Um, and let's say it isn't, then I then have to go through the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the role of, of letting people know the bad news that the experiments that your experiment may be postponed a little bit today. You may have to run that either tomorrow or otherwise. Um, I try to help them adapt their experiment to a different instrument. If we have one available, um, you know, I'll ask how many colors do you have? Oh, that's something that we can run on this other instrument that has that capacity. Um, things like that. Um, so once all the instruments are QC'd, um, I kind of come back in and do the email train, of course, which I think all professors have to deal with. Um, and then I will basically almost be ready for the first client. The other thing that we have to do is set up cell sorting. Um, and so those instruments um, have a little bit more QC than the standard uh, cell analyzers. So I'll get those um, instruments started up and ready to go as well. Um, and yeah, then once people start coming in, if I'm not directly helping somebody one-on-one, -on -one, I tend to walk through the laboratory and see what people are working on, make sure that things are working as expected. Just because I QC an instrument at, you know, nine in the morning doesn't mean it's working by 11 in the morning. So um, I like to go, go through and do that. Um, and then recently I've actually taken on some additional responsibilities on the clinical side. Um, and so actually often around mid-morning, I may get a phone call saying, hey, we got a patient sample in, um, can you come down and, and handle that? And on that end, I'm, uh, not only the director of that facility, but I'm also a technician in that facility. Um, and so, you know, I'll stay in the sample as necessary, create the compensation controls um, and start the analysis as necessary. So tell us how that has changed what you do and, and maybe even the, the drive and enthusiasm you have for your position where it's actually, it's, it's not research, it's actually diagnostics which you know, a patient and a physician are relying on you for getting that test done and done properly. Right, exactly. So, so there's, no, uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about anything there. If you don't have the control, then you can't interpret the results. So that's, that's the reality that you face. Everything that you do is documented. Um, furthermore, if that machine fails, that's it. You're not running that machine that day. On the research side, you could say, well, we're not using that laser. Maybe we're not using that photomultiplier tube to collect that data. So eh, it's fine um, for, the, for everything else that you're going to run. But on the, on the clinical instrument, you know, if it fails, it fails. That's it. Um, so, so it's a lot different. The one thing, you know, uh, as an undergrad, as I mentioned, uh, everyone wants to be a physician, and, and uh, I did. And I think the driver for that is you want to help people. Um, so it's, it's directly translatable um, in this case. You're, you're doing tests that will basically lead to a diagnosis and that diagnosis could, you know, prolong somebody's life depending on the therapy that they're going to get downstream. I can't authorize any of that therapy, of course, but, um, you know, the work that I do will allow them to, to do that. Um, so it's, it's, it's very rewarding in a lot of ways, um, but it's been a pretty interesting transition for sure. Um, and we're still in the midst of that transition, I should say.
So I, I think you know, any time that you can be an important cog in a machine that ultimately helps patients, you can't really complain, right? And, and so how long, when, when did you first take over these res uh, additional responsibilities? That's literally happened as of, I guess it was December 1st, we started the contract with that uh, of, of 2017. So we're talking, it's what, February 14th right now, according to my computer. So it's been a really short time. So we're still in validation stages, but uh, everything's looking up. So hopefully people here are happy with what I'm doing and hopefully we can keep moving forward with this. No, that's, that's, that's great. So I should ask you, are, are you a one-man shop or do you have folks, staff who are working with you? We, I actually do have one uh, superior technician in my laboratory, I should say. So um, compared to other facilities, I think we, we operate with minimal personnel. Um, you know, we do train all of our users to operate the instruments on their own, but it's basically me and one other person. Um, and we handle, hmm, let's see, three, four, five, six analyzers and two cell sorters, as well as the clinical instrument. So um, it's quite a bit of instrumentation for, for two people, but you know, you, you have a lot of balls in the air, as they say, and you're juggling a bit, but it, it, it all seems to work out. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's part of the deal here. <laughs> but tell me, what, what's the most rewarding part of your job? And maybe, because you did mention the, about the patient aspect, so maybe you should emphasize first, maybe the most challenging aspect of your job. Making sure that everyone is aware of the value uh, that the facility and um, the expertise in the facility adds um, can be challenging. Uh, we're always up against a budget struggle, no matter whether you're writing grants or whether you're being funded through um, well, supplemental funding from your school or however it is. We do recharge, and so keeping those rates reasonable for our investigators um, and dwindling pay lines, you know, it can't be jacking up the rates while everyone is losing grant money. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's definitely one of the more challenging things. It's always tough when you have somebody show up and they're missing the relative control and you say, you know, you can move forward with this, but I, I really wouldn't. I would, I would strongly advise you not to continue to move forward with this experiment until you get that control in here. Um, so those things can be difficult. Um, and sometimes it's just hard teaching old dogs the new tricks. Um, we've always done it this way, you know? We, we've always you know, adjusted these voltages as such. And, you know, why would you change that now? Well, the new instrumentation, it, it, you don't do that anymore. <laughs> Maybe we should leave that alone. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes that falls on deaf ears, but, but you do the best that you can. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all, you, all you can do. Now, one of, the th one, well, one of the things that I think is really important from what I know about your job is, and you had mentioned this in some respect in terms of the different areas that you're learning, is that you have an opportunity to publish papers or at least be co-authors on papers based on the expertise that you're providing. You're putting together figures because that data came through the equipment that you oversee and run and you help them, the, the PIs, really run the samples in terms of the, the right way with the right controls and making sure they're getting all the parameters right. So t tell us about that, because that, I think that's really important for listeners to understand that as well, where it's not like you just do one thing or another, but you also get to participate at that level. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, as I as for immunology research, flow cytometry is, is bread and butter and, and everybody kind of knows it and knows how to do it roughly. Um, <laughs> but then sometimes outside of immunology, you don't have that uh, strong backbone of this is flow cytometry, this is how you do it, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, a lot of times I'm 
basically designing the entire experiment for, say, one of our neuroscience researchers who's looking for microglial changes and, and you know, maybe, maybe a stroke situation or maybe um, looking for lymphocyte infiltrates into to mouse models of um, uh, multiple sclerosis like EAE. Um, and so, you know, I'll design those experiments from the very beginning all the way out to the very end. Um, and so I've been very fortunate that my colleagues respect me enough to, to put me on their papers, of course. Um, but in addition, as, as people are writing grants, I, I write many support letters uh, throughout the course of a year. Um, and I've even been involved in writing sections of people's grants, or at least editing sections of people's grants to make them make sense um, to the funding body so that, you know, the, the expertise is there. Uh, additionally, uh, you know, we're, we're, we've submitted a program project grant from, from the university here. Um, and I was the author of the core, core section for the flow cytometry core on that grant. Um, and so, you know, we've looked into also writing shared instrumentation grants and things like that as they've um, come necessary. Um, and I would be involved in all of that as well. So, um, yeah, so, so you do many of the things that are uh, required of a, a conventional PI um, and other things that, that are just completely different. So you have all these opportunities and all these things that you do. So let's take a step back. You said that when you were a postdoc that you know, Leo had watched you do all sorts of things, helping folks in the lab and, run, and running your own samples on, on cytoflora graphs or sorting cells or whatever. And he says, why don't you run the flow cytometry facility? All right, so you walk through the door day one. What happened? So the, the first thing that I, I did um, in the flow cytometry core is I uh, kind of figured out what we had, where everything was. And then uh, I was also then told immediately by our space dean, oh, by the way, you're going to move. Um, so I had to move the entire facility uh, within six months of taking over. Um, and I'm happy to say I did that with zero hours downtime. So nobody was, nobody was put out. Um, so that, that's one credit that I'll actually take. Um, but uh, the other thing that I did is I took all of the computer workstations and things like that, and I standardized those so that they had all of the relevant software so that users could come in and sit down and, and do what they needed to do, make sure that they had you know, all of the Microsoft Word and, and Adobe and all these different programs that you need to, to get work done. Um, and I made sure that those were, were ready to go. I also standardized um, how users were set up on the different instruments um, and our data policy and things like that. So, you know, officially you have two weeks to get your data off of the cytometer or I have the, I have the right to delete it at that point. And I made sure everybody knew that. Um, and this just keeps the instruments running, um, you know, hopefully stress-free, hopefully glitch-free. Um, and, and so we started doing that. I also implemented the quality control that I talked about um, where we make sure that those instruments are running before anyone sits down on them. Um, and then finally, I standardize our training program. And I'm not going to tell you it's the, the best training program out there, um, but at least it's a lot more standardized now. So what I generally have people do is um, they have homework um, where you watch a series of intro to flow cytometry uh, videos, uh, which exists at various websites online. Um, and then when you come in with, to sit down with me, you basically get two hours on the instrument specifically looking at how that specific instrument works. You're not doing, this is the theory of flow, this is how fluorescence works, this is how fluidics works. You're getting, this is how this exact instrument works. Um, I could do all the theory of flow cytometry stuff as a lecture, but as I say in my emails to people, like, 
then that training session becomes four hours and your brain shuts off after like 45 minutes. So, um, so we try to keep that as reduced as possible, try to take some of that stress out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've standardized that basically as we go. Yeah, for me, I remember my learning of how to use a flow cytometer hands-on. Yeah, it probably took two hours for sure, uh, it, but multiple times. Yeah, included, but ultimately I figured it out, which was a good thing. A lot of times people end up with, oh, these are the settings that the postdoc before you did, and uh, this is the template that they used, and so just open those and run, and, and people don't get the education of how they got to the point of getting those settings and getting that template, and I, I think that's critical, so that no matter where you go, whether people come from Yukon and go to Indiana, um, they can sit at the machine and say, okay, this is what I need to do to get it done. Um, and, and I try, I aspire to get people to that level. <laughs> well, it's cer certainly it's the hands-on aspect of instrumentation, regardless of your field, is the best thing. It's like auto mechanics. You're not going to read that out of a book. You need to work on a car and get dirty. Right. And that's the only right. way you're going to do things well. So, Evan, what would happen, do you think, if you weren't doing what you're doing? What, what would you be doing then? What career or job do you think you'd have? Because this was sort of a nice door opening for you to be able to use your background and skills and experience and it was an opportunity because you were in Leo's lab to be able to you know, step into a role as a, a core director. So what, what do you think you'd be doing? You said, yeah, PI was one of those things, but it wasn't at the top of your list. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't fully know. Um, and so I was fortunate not to have to make that decision in a lot of ways because this opportunity presented itself. But, um, you know, if I go back in time and try to remember, um, you know, different, different things had crossed my mind, including uh, working for uh, biotech, um, both large and small. Um, you, know, you know, now with my experience, I'm, I'm poised to work in, um, yeah, for any of the instrument manufacturers, of course. Um, any flow cytometry, you know, manufacturer as well. Um, so, so there are opportunities out there. I think what's critical is, is for this, the, and this was very prescient of, of UConn in general, was to hire somebody in full-time to do this job. We only have two core facilities here that have full-time director, PhD level um, uh, directors. Um, and so that's our uh, confocal microscopy core, uh, as well as our, the flow cytometry, of course. Of course. Um, actually, and now thinking about this, our, uh, we have uh, you know, like a genetic manipulation core that, that also has this, this same level of, of expertise. Um, but these are technologies that change. They're very complicated. Uh, they change frequently. And um, I think they require somebody hands-on. And it's more of a, it's more of a resource. Um, you know, students and postdocs, they come and they go. And sometimes the expertise leaves with them. Um, and so if you have a full-time director that's hopefully well-educated, um, then, the, then the resource stays and the knowledge stays and can be passed on to the future students and postdocs that come through. Um, so there's some continuity there. Um, so I, I think it was very uh, prescient, like I said, of UConn to, to realize that that was necessary, especially for this field, um, where since it's gone from, say, four-parameter flow cytometry now to 30-plus parameter flow cytometry. Yeah, it's pretty incredible as an immunologist. I agree that it's just it expanded a heck of a lot more than when they used to have on the West Coast when they first developed facts analyses and, and things. So, so what if somebody asked you, Evan, they said, well, you know, I want to think about 
maybe being a core director one day, and I because I really like what I'm doing. Well, that's whether it's a core uh, flow cytometry core or confocal microscopy core or even proteomics core. I mean, what what kind of advice would you, would you give them as graduate students or postdocs to really start thinking about that and and maybe some resources they could access to help them in understanding more about that and whether it might be good for them. Sure. So there's, um, so first thing I say is, you know, what are you, I ask is, what are you an expert at? Um, because, because that's really what it, what you have to start with. You know, are you an expert at a certain technique, say RNA sequencing or, or, or confocal microscopy or even two photon or electron microscopy? Um, so you should probably start with that base that I have a really good knowledge of, of this specific technique or something that would be translated into a core facility. Um, and then from there, um, things that you have to, you have to know budgeting, you have to know people. <laughs> um, and by people, I mean, know how to, to work with various groups of people. I mean, uh, I sometimes think I'm the, the university psychologist a little bit and, and the people that come through here, I get the very first year graduate students all the way out to senior deans um, that are still doing research, but they have to come in and, and, and do some flow cytometry in here as well. So you have to be able to deal with the, uh, uh, people from various walks of life. Um, and in addition, I would say um, the resources that are available to you, um, so every, every technology has its own society. So for flow cytometry, there's the International Society for the Advancement of Cytometry. Um, there's also very local societies. So I know, um, I think where you guys, it's Chicago, the Chicago area has, uh, it might even be Great Lakes uh, Flow Cytometry Group, Glyphka or something to that effect. Um, and then we have New England Cytometry here and I'm right in the middle. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I wear two hats. I, I get the New England Cytometry as well as the Metro Flow or the New York, New Jersey Flow Cytometry as well. So, um, but by the way, Red Sox, um, nevertheless. Um, so, so reach out to these organizations and, and get involved as well, um, because then you'll, you'll learn more about it. Um, but these, these societies exist for everything. Um, further, something like um, the ABRF, um, and I'm not gonna remember right now what that stands for, but if you look up ABRF, you'll find it, but it's, uh, it's all different core facilities. It's not just uh, flow cytometry or confocal. Um, you know, it's genomics, it's uh, electron microscopy, it's even, even things like uh, reselling stores and things like that are all part of this, this society. Um, so there are a, a myriad of, of uh, resources out there for you. Um, and I would look, look down those roads. When I, took the, when I was approached about applying for the job, uh, I did my homework. The first thing I did was I actually uh, called somebody who I knew that was a core director at, uh, at UMass at the time. Um, and I you know, asked uh, very specific questions about the job. And um, you know, do your homework before you go out and just jump two feet in, find out what it's all about. Um, but it, those are the major things. Definitely budgeting is, is something to keep in mind as well. Um, and because you don't necessarily get that as, a, as either as a student, graduate student, uh, nor as a postdoctoral fellow. Um, so usually the PI has to deal with all the budgeting or the lab manager or something. And so when you're a director, you're dealing with the budgets and you need to know sort of how your institution works, um, as well as, you know, any changes that are able to be made or, or would take, you know, an act of Congress to make, to change, you know? <laughs> so these are the sorts of things that, that help to have some, some experience with. Well, how, how'd you learn that? I mean, in terms of you, I know you were F32 recipient, but how did you learn about, about budgeting? It's more than just balancing your checkbook. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I mean, with an F-32 and with a, uh, I actually had a T-32 at, at UMass as well, you know, they give you a little bit of money to use to go to a conference or to maybe buy a little piece of equipment or something like that. Um, but it's not nearly the same as, okay, we need to have X amount of money ready for supplies. We need to have X amount of ready money prepared for um, service contracts for these instruments, which are extraordinarily expensive. Um, and then you have to have a little bit of money set aside for, uh, you know, for your salary, of course, right? Um, so all of this has to be be, be kind of portioned out. Um, and the, the hardest thing to do in any of these things is projection. So projecting next year, we expect to have blank amount of usage. Um, and that's, that's, that's almost impossible to do. But if you're lucky, your institution will realize that that's almost impossible to do. And you can kind of base it on previous year's numbers, any trends that you may see in downturns or upturns of usage um, and, and things of this nature. Um, and so, yeah, you do your best and it never quite works out right, but you, you try to get as close as you can. If you can keep it within $10,000, you're usually pretty good, um, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, and so, so how did I learn? I got a, a brief crash course in it um, in my very first uh, year in the facility uh, from uh, Leo LaFrancois. Um, but then a lot of it, I, it was all on the job training. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, basically kind of looking at exactly what I said, trends from previous years, um, how much does this cost and how often do we have to order it? Um, and then just booking that out. Um, you know, it's no different than figuring out your personal finances. I need this much for rent. I need this much for my student loan. I need this much for groceries and I need this much for Friday night, you know? So, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's the exact same thing. Um, just on a much bigger scale and you try not to think of it in that scale. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's quite a daunting task. I'm, I'm sure, but nonetheless essential in order to have an effective core that you direct. So Evan, one last question for you. Is there a question that you think I should have asked you, but I didn't? No. <laughs> you know, I can't really come up with something. You know, it's always the, the uh, if you could have dinner with anyone alive or dead, who would it be? You know, and I, <laughs> I don't really have the answer for that one either. But, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, one of the questions I, I hear all the time on, a, on another podcast uh, is, if you could do anything else in the world, what would you have done? Uh, sort of situation, non-science, of course. Um, and, you know, I probably would have ended up being a musician or a teacher of some kind. Uh, and um, the one thing I would say is, you know, in science, if you can, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything else, then you have to stay in science. But if you can think of something else, cooking, something else, then we're at a place, unfortunately, right now where things are so competitive that you might consider doing that as well. So, um, but, uh, but honestly, you know, when you wake up every day and you can't think of doing something else, then, then science is where you need to be. Right. Yeah. For me, it's going to be uh, beer brewing again. So that's uh, going to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so Evan, thanks very much. Appreciate it. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Evan Jolson, for sharing his story on how he became the director of a key core laboratory in a medical school and the opportunities afforded him in that role. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. 
Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences, which landed them in their current and very exciting position. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.